It's the 3rd of November, 2017, and this is the Room Now we can Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. It is the Friday before ACR. ACR week is upon us. Be sure to follow us on RoomNow.com. We have extensive coverage of the meeting. We've got a large faculty who will be covering psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and gout and lupus and rheumatoid and drug safety and everything. You can go to the website and it'll navigate you to there. Your daily email will take you there um, to our microsite called acr17.roomnow.com. I think you'll like what we're going to present. A lot of videos, a lot of tweets, a lot of short uh, take-home messages, a lot of good articles from a lot of good people. So in the past week, a lot of interesting news on our website. A comparison um, study was done of familial and sporadic lupus. And this was a meta-analysis from 330 papers in the literature. They found 733 um, familial cases of lupus, compared that to over 1,400 uh, sporadic lupus cases to see if there were any differences. And they, what they basically found was that um, things like, there really was nothing really distinguishing for the familial, which I found surprising, it was really a few things for sporadics, photosensitivity, thrombocytopenia, and renal disease were more commonly seen in sporadic lupus compared to familial lupus. Uh, an interesting study from Korea looked at rural uh, women, not those living in, ci in cities, uh, and specifically 432 uh, with NEOA, or actually 432 women after the age of 40, and studied them for the development of NEOA. And they found that the risk of NEOA increased, the two to fourfold increased risk in those who did manual work, farm work, those who had a family history or a history of injury. But they also showed, which has been seen by others before, that smoking, ever or current smoking, reduced the risk of NEOA by as much as 50%. Uh, you may be aware of what's going on in San Diego. Since the summertime, there's been an outbreak of hepatitis A there. We reported that. Uh, in the last few weeks, and the most up recent updated information says there, are, there have been 20 deaths and 536 cases of hepatitis A in the San Diego area. Most of this comes from the homeless population. Uh, it is fecally transmitted. Those of you who are vaccinated are okay. Those of you who are not yet vaccinated, stay away from street, street tacos. Um, but the good news is that this uh, really peaked in the summertime, and the rate of, of, of new infections has gone down significantly, uh, so I think this is a very low-risk event. Uh, nonetheless, there's another infectious event going on in San Diego, and that being that the, if you happen to be a Marine, um, there's been a large outbreak of, of E. coli and diarrhea from E. coli from uh, in, in the San Diego area. The 302 cases of 5,500 5, Marines stationed in the area. Uh, doesn't seem like it's made its way into the general population, but I uh, thought you should know um, that ACR is going to be really exciting this year. Uh, those who take TNF inhibitors, the big issue is persistence on drug. And uh, it's not just for rheumatoid arthritis, it's also for psoriatic arthritis and, and IBD as, as well. But uh, it, a nice study of low persistence, uh, meaning non-adherence to TNF inhibitors, was more likely in um, psoriatic arthritis patients who were female and those who had the metabolic syndrome or related comorbidities. Basically, what they did in the study was they compared um, a cohort of 180 psoriatics starting on TNF inhibitors. They showed that at the end of one year, 79% were still taking the TNF inhibitor. At the end of two years, 74%. That sounds pretty good. But when you look at all those who discontinued the drug in the first two years, 35% were a primary non-response. 
that's interesting. Again, primary non-response means you don't go back to a second TNF inhibitor. It's a gigantic waste of time. 24% for, were for a secondary non-response, meaning they lost their response, and those people would be worth trying maybe another TNF inhibitor. And then 43% of those who discontinued the drug and were non-inherent was because of adverse events. These are, I think, important uh, uh, factors when it comes to how we manage and what we do when patients don't take their medicine or stop their medicines. A review of RA patients, 1,405 RA patients from the National Ambulatory Medical Survey Study looked at their drug utilization. Now, again, everyone has their beliefs about how many patients, like I say, amongst rheumatology practices, over 60% of RA patients are taking biologics. But in the real world, when you look at all comers, including patients not managed by rheumatoid arthritis, but by the primary care sector or whoever, the numbers are much, much lower. And that comes from this study. It shows that 60% are receiving DMARDs, and that's good. Um, only, but only 24% are on biologics. Uh, and biologic use tends to be higher in those on Medicare and those who are seeing specialists. So I, I found the Medicare part interesting because Medicare is older and the data is pretty good about older people not getting aggressive therapy, including biologics, often for a lot of reasons. They're reluctant. Comorbidity issue is, uh, is, is worrisome to prescribers. Um, but nonetheless, uh, if you were, had Medicare, it meant you're more likely to get infusible biologics, I would assume. Um, such as infliximab and uh, tocilizumab and abitacin. A Taiwanese claims database looked at the incidence of cardiovascular events with non-steroidal use. Now, we certainly know since the Biox hearings that this has been a big warning. The cardiologists are all on this bandwagon. Um, and, and we have a little bit of a fight about you know, how to manage patients uh, on, and the use of non-steroidals. In their review of, the, of a claims data, large data, they looked at the risk of a cardiovascular event with oral non-steroidal drugs, and the risk was 2.1 per 100 patient years, which is you know, sizable. But it's actually lower if you look at topical non-steroidals, and significantly lower, but is it really? It's 1.87 per 100 patient years. So again, this is either good information for a rheumatologist or, or hazardous information for a cardiologist. It's up to you to decide how you're going to use it, use it and view it. Uh, PMR diagnosis can be a problem. Um, it shouldn't be. It's, you know, girdle stiffness over the age of 60, more likely over the age of 70, Caucasian, high acute phase reactant, and the other associated features. But in some people, it can be difficult. Uh, one study was published this week on about 99 consecutive p potential PMR patients, and they did FDG PET scans to look at um, inflammation and activity in 12 articular areas of the body. Uh, and, and they had they basically looked at people before they got on prednisone, and, and after, in the end they diagnosed 66 or so with PMR and 32 with other diagnoses. And they found that amongst their 99 patients, the sensitivity of FDG PET, very expensive by the way, it was 85%, a specificity of 87%, a negative predictive value of 74%, a positive predictive value of 73%. I find this interesting because it might be a nice tool if it has such great sensitivity and predictive value um, and specificity. The problem is that this is a clinical diagnosis with simple lab tests and do we really need to trick it up with a very expensive investigation. It may be more of a research tool at this point. Certainly would recommend it in the clinic. Um, may be useful in those who have undiagnosable aches and pains, um, assuming they don't have fibromyalgia. Three registries have shown the risk of serious infection when using biologic. This is, these are French registries. 
that were established with the introduction of tocilizumab, rituximab, and abatacept. And their data over a long period of time is really very encouraging, showing less than one, one or less SIEs per 100 patient years. For tocilizumab, it's one per 100 patient years. For rituximab, 0 0.7. For abatacept, 0 0.6. The idea here is that, you know, out of every 100 patients that goes on a biologic, less than one is going to have a risk of a serious infection, hospitalizable infection. That's real-world data coming from a, uh, three large French cohorts. Uh, an interesting study looked at the use of belimumab in patients with systemic sclerosis. Obviously, uh, a drug, a disease very hard uh, to manage. We don't really have any approved therapies. Uh, on the other hand, belimumab, I think, is looking for a home and a, and a, and a, be a better use. I think it could be more effective than it is in, in lupus. But nonetheless, an early pilot trial of 20 patients with early diffuse systemic sclerosis. Um, everybody goes on uh, mycophenolate, uh, and half the group, 10, go on, on placebo, and the other 10 go on belimumab. And what they did show was that there was some better uh, Rodman skin score outcomes, minus 10 versus minus 3, but that was not significant. Um, anyone who does scleroderma research will tell you that's the low-hanging fruit in scleroderma research, and, and showing uh, improvement in Rodman's skin score is no big deal. It's been shown hundreds of times, and yet we still don't have any effective therapies. You really need to show improvement in lung outcome, GI outcome, renal outcomes, long-term outcomes, hence these studies are really hard to do. They did look at many outcomes. Actually, the only outcome that looked impressive over time, comparing the two groups, was uh, HAC was better in belimumab. Um, um, but uh, skin scores weren't significant. Neither were changes in FBC or DLCO. Uh, a nice teaching point, dactylitis occurs in, sorry, you, what do you think about it? What's your list? Ready? Here are the answers. It can occur in psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, spa in general, reactive arthritis, MCTD, scleroderma patients, uh, systemic sclerosis, or uh, the diffuse kind especially, uh, tuberculosis, syphilis, juvenile arthritis, and what's the last one? Sarcoidosis. Uh, three, uh, four more interesting reports. The CDC has come out with an endorsement. The ACIP has looked at the data about the new uh, approved inactive shingles vaccine called Shingrix from GSK. Um, this is going to compete with the current live virus vaccine, Zostavax, from Merck. Uh, and the CDC's panel voted kind of close. I think it was eight to seven or seven to six in favor uh, of endorsing the new um, inactive Shingrix vaccine over Zostavax. Uh, that's important for us and our patients who are on biologics, can't take the live virus vaccine. The Shingrix vaccine, however, this, uh, the, the new one is now, going, is now available. It's FDA approved. Um, it's going to be a few injections, and these injections have a, um, a uh, increased rate of uh, constitutional manifestations, arthralgias, flu-like symptoms, fever, etc. Uh, it's going to be more expensive. I think it's going to be as much as $600 is what I've, I've been told. So don't hold me to that. That's what I've sort of street news. Um, so again, it'll be interesting to see how this gets integrated in practice in rheumatology amongst our patients. A very important study was published by, um, I believe it's Lancet. It's the CRIB study authored by Xavier Murray from uh, France. And uh, this was published, uh, presented at the meetings last year. And this is a prospective study of 16 women who are on sertilizumab during pregnancy. At the time of delivery, uh, and within 30 days of delivery, they had blood samples. And then at delivery, they had uh, blood from the mother, from the infant, uh, and from the cord blood. 
And again, the patient had to receive the drug within 30 days of delivery. Uh, and what they showed in their 16 patients was the following. Two were excluded because the data was all screwy. Um, but of the remaining 14, 13 of 14 had no um, detectable sertilizumab in uh, the infant blood. There was, a, uh, it, it was there in cord blood, as you might expect. Uh, and um, when they looked at those children at uh, four weeks and eight weeks down the line, there was no blood in the infant later on, suggesting again and proving that sertilizumab does not cross the placenta uh, in women who are taking uh, this drug during, during pregnancy. Um, an, an important study, you should probably look at this quickly, from Annals of Internal Medicine on about death rates in lupus. They looked at death rates um, between 1968 and 2013, some incredible number, like 50,000 deaths in lupus, and compared lupus deaths to deaths in people not with lupus. This is a large population-based study. Uh, and, and they showed that there remains to be a disproportionately high rate of death in lupus, while uh, death rates in the general population have come down. Lupus levels have not come down as much. In fact, they came down in the 60s, went back up in the 70s, and have come down since. But more importantly, they showed that when you look at the ratio of lupus deaths to non-lupus deaths, that uh, there were favorable things being seen for whites, but not favorable for women, uh, African Americans, and those living in the South. So there are geographic differences, there are race uh, and gender-related differences that may have to do with access to care and other factors. Uh, but uh, an important study saying that we still need um, more aggressive therapy and education in lupus. An important study was published in, Calm, uh, in, um, in Lancet this week called the CALM study. This is an adalimumab study given to patients with Crohn's disease. Uh, and they really looked at the issue of what they call tight control. It's not quite the same as RT2T, but tight control for them was they had two cohorts, one that what received, had decisions made but using the CDI, which is the Crohn's Disease Activity Index, it's, uh, and, and that's how usual care goes. But more importantly, the, the trend in, in GI these days is to use uh, calprotectin and CRP and other biomarkers, and they used in their tight control group uh, uh, the definitions of non-response or failure with three factors, the CDI, the CRP, and fecal calprotectin levels. They showed that when you were more stringent in your definition of control or failure to control, you had better outcomes in the tight control group, 46%, versus the uh, usual care group, 30%. So that's it for this week at roomnow.com. Go to the uh, website. You can find these links uh, and to read up more on this. More importantly, you should uh, bookmark our website, acr17.roomnow.com, acr and follow us next week. We start publishing on Sunday. We'll see you at ACR in San Diego.